Hello, and welcome back to the Digging Deeper podcast. I'm Jonathan, and this episode features my interview with Mike Hammer, a senior mergers and acquisitions advisor on what happens behind the scenes when one business purchases another and what these moves mean for the construction industry moving forward. Mike works for Generational Equity, a mergers and acquisitions advisor for privately held businesses headquartered in Dallas. GE creates an information memo on the client's company. This can then be marketed to targeted buyers within a specific industry to find the best fit and facilitate the exchange of information, manage the M&A process, and provide advice as to precedence for the values, purchase terms, and due diligence steps to complete the process. So, Mike, I just gave our listeners a brief overview of GE. Can you expand on this a bit more? What does generational equity do? So I've been with generational equity since uh, pretty close to when they started the uh, M&A advisory work that is the main thrust of what we provide in the marketplace. But they've grown to provide a very large range of, of, uh, of services that serve the uh, mid-markets uh, very effectively, helping uh, owners of businesses to market their, their companies when they are ready to uh, consider an exit strategy um, and uh, try to get, uh, obviously, the, the best value. Uh, doing it the way we have been doing it with the GE uh, process has worked very well, and it's made GE the, the largest uh, M&A, I don't want to say shop, but M&A uh, a corporation providing these services in North America. Okay. Is there a type of business that you uh, generally work with like manufacturers or is it across the board it's pretty agnostic we we work with with anything from from uh, you know manual labor type businesses to high tech businesses from okay. uh, you know a lot of distribution businesses i mean there i don't think there's one business you can name that would not be well served by third party negotiation and marketing What's that kind of negotiation like? Like, are, are you just talking the services provided and then just walking everybody through, like you said, or is it, it's got to be more involved than that? Well, look, I, I use a lot of analogies because they serve my purpose. So I hope, hopefully, they won't. I love analogies. First of all, you know, third party negotiation is always the best. I mean, I used to have my own business and I used to love it when I could kind of pass it on to somebody else and then be the last guy to weigh in on what I thought was right or wrong or good or bad. Because you can say things as a third party. I can say as a third party that the business has uh, these terrific elements in its goodwill component. When the seller says that, it's very self-serving. When I say it, it has a different tonality to it. It has a different, uh, shall we say, uh, you know, presentation. And it'll sound a lot more objective. Plus, I can back it up. Sure. 
And the more and the more I back it up, the more value it has. The more the, the seller backs it up, the more the buyer questions the the, the veracity of, of the information. So so basically, the negotiations are uh, a critical part. They don't happen right off the bat, although they they do start somewhere where the buyer says, "Is your client dreamy and technicolor when it comes to value?" And <laughs> so. I'm telling you, you hear it all. It's it's great. It's great stuff. Every, every deal can write a book, but uh, I usually tell them no. They're they're within range of, of what the industry standards are, and then at that point, the conversation is between two people that know how to speak to value, because not everyone knows how to speak to value and valuation. Sure, I'll, I'll give you a little anecdote. You can you know, put it somewhere where you can use it or not. We were doing a deal. It was a $50 million operation in Maritimes uh, uh, in Eastern Canada. They were uh, a meat distributor. Okay. And the Maritimes are very charming, much like your New England states, you know, but even, uh, even, even more remote, if you like, in terms of, you know, commercial trade and so on and so forth. But, but they have, they have a pretty robust uh, environment on all levels. And the the CFO for the company was an accountant. And she said to me, um, you know, I, I don't know, like we were getting some offers and she, she didn't understand where they were coming from or, or how they were being put together, or what, what, the, what, the, what the calculus was for these offers. And I said, look, you're an accountant, right? She says, yeah like a full-fledged chartered CPA accountant. I said, so all your numbers have to be accurate. They have to reconcile with the books. They have to balance out on your ledgers. Is that correct? She says, yeah. She says, I said, none of that applies in evaluation. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, everything is arbitrary in evaluation. The metrics that are used, uh, if you look at the metrics of, uh, say, EBIT as an example, uh, there's a lot of adjustments there on discretionary items. Well, that's a little arbitrary, and, and sometimes it, under scrutiny, it gets messed around a little bit or, or adjusted again. Uh, the the metric on multipliers or multiples of, of EBITDA uh, are established by the industry based on transactions that are recorded and can be monitored or at least you know referenced. The only issue is that those multiples are not the same just based on numbers. They, they apply based on uh, customer concentration. There's a lot of customer concentration that has to be discounted. There's, there's a uh, shortfall, say, in, in the infrastructure of the business and how it, it's transitioned. There's various elements that affect those multiples. And again, it's arbitrary, but it, in the final analysis, the buyer prices in the 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 um, how shall we say the value elements of the business for them, their synergies, what they can do with the business. They price that in because they can scale the business more quickly than than the seller, mm-hmm. and they also cost in the risks. What are the risks? And that creates a kind of a structured. Uh, purchase where there's a little bit of a performance cost, perhaps, or a vendor take back and so on. But you can see where it's not a clearly defined, it's 
you do A, B, C, D, and E. You do A, B, C, and D, and then you come back to C, and then you go back to D, and then you try to get them to reconcile, and there's a lot of scrutiny, and that's how it works. So hmm. a lot of accountants who uh, do not want to stick their necks out, having said to their client, it's worth this or that, will just back away from the valuation conversation. For that very reason, because it is very arbitrary. But it sounds like it's a, a vital part of the process, at least to start out with, uh, to know your own value. Yeah, but what we do, and this is some of the, the basic advantages of dealing with a company like Generational Equity as opposed to trying to do it yourself. Remember, confidentiality is a big factor here. Mm -hmm. You do not want your employees to find out. You do not want your customers to find out. You do not want your suppliers to find out or your bank for that matter, that you're about to sell the company. Not until it's a done deal. And then you go through that part of the, you know, massaging it into place. But if we go into the marketplace, we are getting response from people who have been targeted within an industry as potential buyers for this particular enterprise that we're marketing. They have their own calculus to come up with, with, with a price that makes sense for them. And it could be anything. I mean, it, the, the difference is that you're going to see an enterprise value from one to the other could be like they're in different worlds sometimes. But that's because the synergies that one has are different than synergies that another one has. And some of them relate well to quick scaling of the revenues and the profitability of the business. And they pay a little bit of that upfront or not. It depends. That's how it's negotiated. But the fact that we have a business and we can say to any buyer, this business is in the market. Lowballing the business is not going to get us any traction whatsoever, and I'm the gatekeeper. So, on behalf of our clients, when someone says to me, as they have from time to time, you know, hardball players, they like, the, especially American guys, they're a lot more. I mean, we all play baseball here, but you guys play hardball, we play lobball. You know, it's kind of like that. But point is, when they say to me, we don't pay for goodwill, or we're not going to pay for our synergies, I say, well, that's fine, but then I don't know why you're looking at this business. If you're looking at the assets of the business, they, you can probably buy them at 30 cents on the dollar, especially capital assets. Like the concrete industry has a lot of that. Typically, what happens is this. We send out uh, a mailing with a non-disclosure agreement, an introductory letter, and a blind profile of the business, a one-page teaser. If they're interested and they qualify, which means I go to their website or the, or the client knows them or we have determined that they are a qualified buyer as opposed to someone who is just kicking tires or, or worse. Because, I mean, what's going on in our world from a... Uh, I don't want to call it fraud, but <clears throat> a userish type of approach. Like some people will, will get a SIM. So anyway, so, so we will, if they qualify, we send them the SIM, a confidential information memo, which gives them a complete 
overview of the business. And we'll redact the customer names, we'll redact the employee names, some of the critical information that's not required right up front. But basically, they know who it is, what it is, what they do, what their three years of financials show, what their projections are. It's a pretty comprehensive document to determine their interests. If that has been accepted, we go to calls, conference calls, we go to meetings to, to secure uh, some traction for the deal. And at the same time, to develop some chemistry, because we certainly advocate for the sellers to stay with the business for at least a year or more, and sometimes even longer, uh, to, to ensure the transition of that goodwill and the culture of the business so that everybody wins. Because you can have a business running for 30 years and you put it in the wrong hands. In six months, it's insolvent. What is the number one first kind of quote unquote fear or concern of contractors um, when they hear of a another company's uh, merger or an acquisition? Um, because maybe they're like that's their main supplier, uh, or just what, what what is that number one concern? Well, listen, anyone in business, as much as they're striving to, to improve and progress and all that kind of stuff, their biggest fear is change. Don't change anything. Unless, <laughs> unless, unless, it's, unless it's really bad. You, know, you don't want to change anything. Sure. <clears throat> so there's always concern that uh, the new owners or the new structure is going to affect their supply chain or the prices or the quality or things of that nature. You know, it certainly will affect the relationship. But it's certainly not the intention of a good deal to, to change anything in, in, in a negative way. If anything, you want to improve it, not, not change it. And I find most of the time, I'm not saying all the time, but most of the time, uh, when I circle back just to see how things are going a year or two later, uh, in some cases, the employees were happier to have the, the owner out of the business because he was a little hard to take. Uh, the, uh, the customers are finding that they're getting a, a better, better, a better organized team to deal with, better quality, faster service. It goes every which way but loose, but that's that's entrepreneurship, you know. It's, sure. As I tell people, this what we're about to do when we go into M and A process is not a walk in the park; it's a trek in the jungle. What tends to happen in the industry when companies start to combine? Um, how does this affect contractors? Well. <laughs> It, it depends. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it really depends on a lot of things. Um, first of all, you know, you'll, you'll see this particularly with the tech, <laughs> in the tech sector or, or certain sectors where they're consolidating and it's giving them a kind of a monopoly uh, and, and uh, the ability to raise prices or control prices. Okay. Right? There's, there's some of that. 
in our range of small to mid-sized privately owned companies, the consolidation does not really have that kind of an impact. Like, you know, they're suddenly they're controlling the prices or 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 they're they're controlling the supply. These are these are growth strategies on the buy side who have decided they can they can function more profitably and, and grow through acquisition rather than organically. So but everyone has their own strategy because one 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 group is totally committed to uh, metal fabricating. The other group wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. One group's uh, totally committed to certain types of, of um, digital information or, or technology. A another group has no use for it whatsoever. They have other sources of, of, of interest for their, for their uh, revenue streams. So it varies, and some have combination. Mm -hmm. They offer they offer um, uh, services on one side, then they offer uh, apps and and uh, you know software as an application stuff, and and it depends on you know how they've kind of come together to to create their business, and that's part of the the issue for me. The first thing I look for, no matter what the business is. It could be a lawn cutting business, or it could be a, a document uh, management business, or it could be a, a high tech uh, scientific application business. The first focus for me when I when I talk to a potential buyer is if there's a fit. Like I want to know what they see. I mean, sometimes you can see it pretty obvious on a website. You can see all the related. Uh, companies in their portfolio but sometimes it's not obvious so you have to kind of dig a little deeper so first you go for fit then you go for chemistry because they got to get along if you have someone that's coming along and you've got a company that's got 40 50 or more employees there's a culture there to have the buyer just step in and say okay we know how to run this thing it's not the final answer because if the culture's different, like I said, every, you know, a lot of goodwill can be destroyed. Yeah, and we've seen that. I mean, it's not like we haven't seen it. It's, it's not like a, a you know, a, a speculation. It's more of a experience reference. Yeah, and I, I kind of understand what you mean by culture and synergy because uh, contractors especially in the construction world, um, they are a tight-knit team. Um, they've been working together for probably years and they probably have a, like a family. They know what's going on. And if there's suddenly another group is going to be working with them, it's, it's got to work together. Well, we, bigger have, family. we have a couple of companies that are in construction, concrete, uh, forming, uh, you know, that that type of industry and i can tell you that the complexities for these deals are, are are beyond most of the others for a couple of reasons one is it's a tough industry that undulates 
with the economy. You have ups and downs, you have, they, they respond to different uh, elements and the economic forces globally for that matter. You yeah. know, there's, move, there's movement of people, more housing required. There's, there's uh, a lot of in- infrastructure projects that are coming due. You, you, yeah. So, so there's, there's the undulating, uh, so we say variance from, from, from period to period. I won't say year to year, but period to period. So you have to look at what's in the pipeline. Then you're dealing with, never mind the culture, you're dealing with, with unions. Yeah. So, the, so the union element is a whole other story. Um, then you're also dealing with uh, capital equipment. So typically, if you have any of these businesses, will have capital equipment. You know, expensive derricks that, that are a million and a half dollars plus. They're sure. Various types of equipment. And they're always on capital leases. Well, in a transition of a business like that, it becomes an issue as to how you transition the debt. If the, if the buyer says, it's, it's, we're not taking on debt, and, and, the, and the seller has to pay off the leases with penalties on top of that and hand over the equipment fully paid for, the, the math isn't so great. So it has. <laughs> So it has to be it has to be properly negotiated, but it's complicated because then it's a question of what's the life of that equipment? How many hours has, has, has that equipment been used? What how's it been maintained? Was it properly oiled and, and greased and all that kind of stuff? You know, yeah. so so you have like different like you wouldn't have that. I mean, any fabricating company that has equipment will have some of that as an issue but not like in the construction industry not like in in cement forming or or, or in that that part of the you know of, of the economy i hope i hope those contractors have some sort of management or um, technology software management to keep track all of that maintenance that was happening with the, that all those equipment, how long it's been running, when it was maintained, um, so that's just well, a little they get bit easier. They, they 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 do get there because they have, but they have to get big enough. And most of the guys that I've met that are in, let's say, construction or contracting work. Mm-hmm. And I've dealt with people that did, uh, you know, uh, confined space excavation in addition to large excavations for water reservoirs and so on and so forth. So they usually are on the road by 5 a.m. Driving around to their various sites. Providing anything from fuel for the equipment or oversight to the problems because it's an industry that's governed by Murphy, right? Yeah. So pretty much on any given day, something will go wrong or everything that can go wrong will go wrong. And then when the day's finally over, maybe five, six o'clock, 
and there's a quality of life that they may want to indulge in, like to have a kid or two, <laughs> have a dinner or two. And then God forbid work them. actually ends at the end of the day. It doesn't. <laughs> because then there's the paperwork. Yeah. And it takes a while till you build up enough of an infrastructure for your own business that says, okay, you take care of this and you take care of that. And even when they do that, they still have to have oversight because whoever's doing that is still making mistakes. I have never met, I can honestly say that, I've never met uh, an accounting clerk, you know, accounts payable, accounts receivable, different people, mm-hmm. uh, a payroll clerk, a, a bookkeeper, moving up to a controller, moving up to a CFO, moving up to the uh, VP of finance that hasn't made a mistake. And the higher up they go, the bigger the mistakes. Well, we're all human. Yeah, you're all human, but how the, how the information is processed you know, you, you, I mean, at the worst case scenario, you got you have an Enron, you know. Sure. And and then you have the largest accounting firm in the world. Who's the accounting firm Enron? Um, Arthur uh, Anderson. Yes. Okay. Arthur Anderson, largest accounting firm in in the world, disintegrated within a month or two after that. Jeez. Just just to make my point. So it also looks um, like 2021 looks to have been a pretty busy year for generational equity. Um, There seems to be two patterns colliding together um, and what I believe is referred to as a super cycle. And I want to know what you mean by super cycle, but these two patterns being like the boomers retiring and selling the business and then millennials selling to move on to new ventures. First question, what do you, you know, explain more of a super cycle and then where are we seeing most of this movement and what kind of market size? Look, let's start with this. The clock is ticking for everybody. So if you've been running your business 20 or 30 years and you've gone through COVID for the last two years and you just. You know, you're you're tired of, you don't have the energy, the wherewithal to grow the business anymore. You'd rather, if you've worked hard, you've got some toys, you want to go play now, Mm -hmm. or you think you do anyway. Um, It's time to hand it off to someone that's going to grow it beyond the level that you've grown it to. So that's, that's your privately owned, small to mid-sized business, right? Yeah. <clears throat> Beyond that, you've got, if you want to call them millennials or, or, or younger owners of businesses, who aren't really, you know, positioned to retire, or they shouldn't put themselves in that position, feel that the markets are active, and it's a good time to get a higher value for your business. 
or their strategy is to to uh, you know monetize what they've done and move on and start a new business because historically people would enter into into an industry and stay for life. Today, that's not so much the case. There are many more options available to everybody. It's a question of repurposing your resources, if you like, mm-hmm. so that you can do things that keep you engaged, keep you excited about what you're doing. I mean, look, I, I my, in my own experience, I had 50 employees. I had inventory. I had customers. I dealt with banks. I dealt with some union stuff. But I knew when I'd hit a certain age, sales would not be my strong suit for the simple reason that I didn't have the patience for it. And today, particularly, where you can't really speak to anyone anymore, it's either a voice, you can't even leave a voicemail. <laughs> they just text you, right? Yeah. So you're texting, you're emailing, but it takes me usually 10 to 15 emails to set up a call or a visit, a meeting. Now, what I do is is in many ways very specialized if you're going to do it right, because you have to understand how all the dots connect. And if you haven't run a business with employees and banks and customers and so on, production, suppliers, it's just an MBA study, which is very nice because it's on paper. And, and, and there's no, you know, there's no issues with people on paper. You don't have someone come into that paper pr- presentation with a personal problem and mess up the whole day's project. That doesn't happen in an MBA <laughs> project. And, and people, they don't give it much consideration, whereas they should, obviously. So what happens is people are out there listening, they hear, they want to, they get, they get an idea. That's where it all starts, that this would be a good idea. Now, GE pr- presents conferences every week all over North America with very capable guys who know how to speak to the issues and answer questions and provide the information that these people need to hear to make a decision about going to market or transitioning their business or developing their own exit strategy. Like I I tell clients, don't think of it as selling your business. It's not like someone's going to walk in and they're going to give you a check and you're going to give them the keys and that's it. It's so far from that, you can't imagine. Okay, what's really happening here is you will c- create a runway for yourself that should be a benefit. Like you'll enjoy handing off the information that you've acquired. You will be able to help someone, which is which is always a good thing, to help grow the business. Mm-hmm. During that period, you'll work a little bit less, and you'll start enjoying your life at a different level. I like the idea, the analogy um, of creating that runway, because then I can use that pun of 
you can make that runway out of concrete and it's all layers <laughs> and there's steps there. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. I told you I like analogies. <laughs> no, well, me too. I, analogies, <laughs> analogies always have some, give it a second thought. Oh yeah, you're right. You know, yeah. that's a good way to communicate. Yeah. What have been, um, in your mind, what have been the largest mergers acquisitions for the concrete and construction industry recently? Um, what can you tell me about them? I think Gemite well, or Gemite products to WR Meadows was a recent one. Yeah, no, Gemite had a fairly um, smaller footprint in, in the process. They had a very unique product, mm-hmm. which was very well received within the industry. But because they never, I shouldn't say they never, but they didn't for many years that I I was aware of. I, I only dealt with them for a couple of years. They didn't really have a dedicated sales force except WR Meadows as a distributor. So I don't know. I didn't deal with WR Meadows, but I do know that sales were were of uh, you know could could have been grown considerably had they had a sales force, but the two owners were were not ready to take that on. The trouble with, with the sales force is it's made up of salespeople. Um, I could imagine that we, we did mention negotiations earlier and we, we talked a little bit about what that could be like. Um, I could imagine tensions can get high. Do you have any like stories you can share there? Um, well, that's where the third party kind of has a, a good mitigating uh, value in, in the equation because I can speak to the buyer if they are, I mean, I don't write the check. <laughs> and if the buyer doesn't see adequate value in the business that I can identify with the proper rationale, I can discourage them from moving forward. But all of this is, is passed through with our clients. I, I don't do this on my own hook. Sure. But beyond that, the process that we we execute on is is ideally suited for this. We ask for, after giving for, uh, adequate information and answering all the questions and providing the proper financial reporting, we ask for a non-binding term sheet, IOI, LOI, NBO, you name it. They're all non-binding offers, proposals for the acquisition of a business. Once we have it in writing, we negotiate or, or our clients look at it, make their decisions as to what's acceptable, what isn't. In some cases, they're just too far apart. And we say, you know what, you're too far apart. Forget it. We're not going anywhere. That's part of what I would tell the buyer. If the seller has unrealistic expectation of value based on standards in the industry, based on some of the weaker aspects of their business. Like for instance, 
they don't appreciate the risk of customer concentration that the 70% of their businesses with two, two clients, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. We'll explain what that looks like in the buyer's lens and what kind of structures can offset it if they're willing to accept it. So those are the types of negotiations that get a little, you know, tougher. And some of them fall apart. In some cases, you know, they can negotiate with perfect numbers, great numbers, high numbers. But there's a level of distrust between the buyer and the seller. And the seller says, I don't trust the buyer. Hmm. I, I terminate. You never know. Yeah. I, 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 we, my, my more famous story is we were negotiating for two years uh, with an, a letter of intent on the highest value the company had ever seen. And they ter- the, the sellers terminated the negotiations because they didn't trust the buyer. I, I was astounded because a lot of work had been done. <laughs> but you learn and then you try not to do it again. Well, you know. Yeah. Say you are a contractor. Let's say a a listener is a contractor uh, and they're thinking about if it's time to put their business up for sale. Um, What are the first things they should consider? Well, they have to consider uh, their value elements. Like what's, what's so good about their business that'll transition properly. And then they have to have proper financial reporting that'll stand up to the scrutiny of a buyer. Probably presented in a way that backs up their data so that the buyer doesn't say, I don't believe you. <laughs> well, Avoid that the situation. Buyer, the buyer will say, I don't believe you in one way or another, but we're saying, do your due diligence. Yeah. We're, we're not, I mean, as much as we can uh, adjust the numbers so that they're accurate and relevant, we do. I mean, our, our credit, <laughs> quite frankly, my, rec- my credibility in any deal is more important than that deal. You know, when the buyer... When, when the seller says to me, well, why don't you tell the buyer we've got some, uh, you know, we've got other offers? I said, but we don't. Yeah, but tell them. No. <laughs> I'm sorry. It doesn't work that way. Right. If I, that's one of the good things about what we do. It, it doesn't necessarily have 100% candor, but it better have 100% truth. And what about like the flip side of the whole situation? If you're looking to add a service to your business, how would you know to acquire versus growing your own business from the start? Well, you could look at it objectively and say, it's going to cost me X to start it. Like you never know what it's going to cost you to get your first customer. Right? Mm -hmm. It could be 10 bucks, could be a million bucks. Right? You don't know. Yeah. Well, that's business, right? Well, yeah. So 
And, and then you take a look and you say, well, this is a running business. It's got all these elements that I can add on to mine. It'll get me this, that, and the other thing. And not to say you're going to be 100% accurate or right about your decision, but that's, the, that's part of the process. What are the things, going back to that contractor looking to sell, um, what are the things you shouldn't do? <laughs> the main thing you shouldn't do is try to sell your own business. <laughs> First of all, you lose whatever level of confidentiality you need to keep things moving along. Sure. Where your your employees, your customers, your suppliers don't find out. You, you lose that element of confidentiality immediately. And then when the buyer says to you, I want to see your financials, what are you going to say? No. You're going to, you're going to have to give me your financials. Yeah. The financials are not going to be normalized or, 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 uh, or uh, adjusted properly. You know? or recast properly. So you're not going to show them at their best. And you don't even know that. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's a process. It's like, look, at, you, you go to a lawyer because of their technical knowledge of the law and you want them to advise you with the problem that you have or whatever it is you want to do how to best do it to stay within the, you know, compliance. Okay. You go to an accountant the same way. Sure. Most, most people don't know what their lawyers or accountants are doing for them. Well, he, he does my finance, financial statements. Yeah, but what, what, what does that mean? That he does your financial statements. <laughs> he does it in compliance without CRA wants to see them. And even then there's mistakes. But at least he's chartered, he's a professional, and he has errors and emissions insurance. <laughs> and he better fix whatever it is that he made a mistake with, right? But when it comes to mergers and acquisition, when it comes to uh, advisors at this level, the hybrid of functions are, are too numerous to mention. Yeah, you have to know how to sell, you have to know how to buy, you have to know how to psychoanalyze, you have to know how to hold a hand, you have to know how to slap a hand. You got to know all these things and, and use them with one purpose in mind. Serve the client's interests. Do you envision more mergers and acquisitions on the horizon? Yeah, because I think it's become a, a more understood an acceptable way to for people to monetize the, the value of the businesses that they've built in in a structured environment where there 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 never mind it complies with with the legalities it um, they're protected in the transaction if they do it right Sure. You know, where 
they, they do the transaction two, three years later when there's a final payment due or there's something that, that, that goes awry or whatever, they can revert back to the purchase agreement that was ratified legally and be protected by it if they do it right. So with more of that being available and they have an awareness, more and more people see, well, this, this is probably a good idea to do. Well, I would like to thank you for your time and uh, speaking, taking, your, uh, taking a moment, talking to us. Well, it's always fun to share information. Thanks. As long as it helps somebody. Yeah. And if you got a couple of good stories in there, <laughs> it always helps. There's, there's always a good story. <laughs> Every deal is a story. And that about does it for this episode. I'd like to thank Mike Hammer and Generational Equity again for digging deeper into the mergers and acquisitions process. Sorry, I, I couldn't help myself. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of the Digging Deeper podcast by 4constructionpros.com. Until next time, stay safe out there.